This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 4. Why do some narratives go viral? It is difficult to state accurately or to quantify the reason a few economic narratives go viral while most fail to do so. The answer lies in a human element that interacts with economic circumstances. Beyond some simple and predictable regularities, a network of human minds sometimes acts like an almost random number generator in selecting which narratives go viral. The apparent randomness in outcomes has to do with randomness in the mutation of stories to more contagious forms and with moments of our individual lives and attentions that can lead to a sudden climax of public attention to specific narratives. We routinely find ourselves puzzling years later over the reasons for the success of popular narratives in history and for their economic consequences. The Spontaneity of Narratives in Human Thinking and Actions At the beginning of the 20th century, Scholars from a wide array of disciplines began to think that narratives, stories that seem to have entertainment value only, are central to human thinking and motivation. For example, in 1938, the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre wrote, quote, A man is always a teller of tales. He lives surrounded by his stories and the stories of others. He sees everything that happens to him through them, and he tries to live his life as if he were recounting it." End quote. The story of oneself and the story one tells about others inevitably have diverse connections to what we call human interest, either directly or indirectly. When we are asleep at night, narratives appear to us in the form of dreams. We do not dream of equations or geometric figures without some human element. Neuroscientists have described dreaming, involving characters, settings, and a hierarchical event structure, as based on a storytelling instinct. In fact, the brain's activity during dreaming resembles the activity of certain damaged brains, in which lesions of the anterior limbic system and its subcortical connections lead to spontaneous confabulation. In their attempts to understand social movements, sociologists have begun to think of the contagion of narratives as central to social change. For example, sociologist Francesca Poletta, who studied the sit-in social movement of the 1960s, in which white Americans participated in protests of discrimination against blacks, reported that students described the demonstrations as unplanned, impulsive, like a fever, and over and over again, spontaneous. These demonstrations were often driven by particular popular narrative about blacks demanding service at lunch counters that were labeled as white only, accompanied by young white supporters who showed moral outrage at the exclusion of blacks. This kind of protest, christened the sit-in, ultimately became a symbol of a new social movement. That's awesome. The sit-in story emerged from a single story about a February 1st, 1960 protest involving four students from Greensboro Agricultural and Technical College. The story revolved around young, polite black people who ignored orders to leave the lunch counter where they were not served. The young people sat patiently, waited to be served until the restaurant closed, 
and then they returned the next day with more people. The story went viral through word of mouth and through news media attention, and within weeks, the sit-ins spread throughout much of the United States. The story's spread was not entirely unplanned, Paletta concludes. Activists tried to promulgate the story, but they were not in tight control of the social movement, which was largely viral. The word sit-in, coined in 1960, was a true epidemic with a hump-shaped curve resembling the hump-shaped pattern through time that we see in disease epidemics. Use of the term sit-in, as revealed by Google Ngrams, grew until 1970, 10 years later. In the interim, the movement spawned the word teach-in, which had a similar epidemic curve, though less intense and fading earlier. Several generations earlier, another story had raised white people's sympathy for the plight of black folks in the United States. It appeared in Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. The book was the most successful novel in the 19th century United States, selling over a million copies when the country's population was much smaller and less able to afford books. It tells the story of an older slave, Uncle Tom, who loves children and who tells stories to little Eva, the white slave owner's innocent little daughter. Eva, still a child, dies of a sudden illness, but not before asking to have locks of her hair cut off and distributed to the slaves with the wish that she will see them again in heaven. Tom is separated from his wife and children and sold to a vicious slave owner, Simon Legree, who beats him mercilessly for refusing orders to beat another. The book contains some highly evocative scenes, including one of the slave mother Eliza fleeing with her four-year-old son after she is told that he will be sold. Pursued by the slave owner's bloodhounds, Eliza clutches her son as she struggles to cross the dangerous ice of the Ohio River. A hit song, in the form of sheet music, titled Eliza's Flight, appeared in 1852, and numerous plays called Tom Shows, typically including the Eliza scene, sprang up all over the United States, likely infecting far more people than the printed book did. The Uncle Tom, Simon Legree, and Eliza narratives played an unmistakable role in the North's decision to invade the South after it seceded. The Civil War began in 1861, a historic event with enormous human and economic significance. On the Universality of Narrative Anthropologists who research the behavior of diverse cultures around the world have observed a class of behaviors that they call universals, found in every human society, if not in every individual. Anthropologist Donald E. Brown identified a universal that is important to this book, that, quote, people use narrative to explain how things came to be and to tell stories, end quote. In fact, the narrative is a, humanly, is a uniquely human phenomenon, not shared by any other species. Indeed, some have suggested that stories distinguish humans from animals, and even that our species should be called homo narrans, homo narrator, or homo narrativus. Might this description be more accurate than homo sapiens? It is more flattering to think of ourselves as homo sapiens, but not necessarily more accurate. In ancient Greece, the philosopher Plato appreciated the importance of narratives. He wrote his philosophy in the form of fictional dialogues featuring the celebrity Socrates. 
the narrative, dialogue, the narrative force helps to explain what makes his work still popular today. In his dialogue, Republic, written around 380 BCE, Plato has a character argue that the government should censor popular stories. Talking with Adamantus, Socrates says, quote, I do not say that these horrible stories may not have a use of some kind, but there is a danger that the nerves of our guardians may be rendered too excitable and effeminate by them, end quote. In his book, De Orator, On the Orator, 55 BCE, itself a book about narrative, the Roman senator Cicero says, quote, Nature forms and produces men to be facetious mimics or storytellers, their look and voice and mode of expression assisting their conceptions, end quote. Other species have culture, but narratives do not transmit that culture. How is it that other animals learn fundamental survival skills, such as fearing specific predators? Experiments have shown that the monkeys are genetically predisposed to fear snakes, and birds are genetically predisposed to be afraid of hawks. Moreover, experiments have shown that monkeys and birds acquire fear when they observe others attack their own species. They also acquire fear, even lasting fear, when they observe circumstances that arouse fear among others in their group, even if no attack occurs. But that mechanism of cultural transmission is imperfect, and the ability to transfer stories with language is uniquely human. Human narratives' power in inspiring fear lies in the fact that the information can be transmitted without any observation of the fear-inducing stimulus. If the narrative is strong enough to generate a salient emotional response, it can produce a strong reaction, such as an instinctual fight-or-flight response. Also universal are norms of polite conversations that facilitate the transmission of narratives. Basic politeness involves simple actions like looking at the person with whom one is speaking and giving some indication of hello at the beginning of the conversation and goodbye at the end. These norms tend to flatter the other party. They are so ingrained that, as experiments have shown, people are somewhat polite when conversing with computers, too. Visitors to any human society will observe people facing each other, sitting around the television or the campfire and talking, and more recently, tweeting and posting to other social medias to learn each other's reactions, to seek feedback that will either confirm or disconfirm their thoughts. It seems that the human mind strives to reach an enduring understanding of events by forming them into a narrative that is embedded in social interactions. It has also been suggested that our species be called Homo musicus, man the musician, because composed music is found in all human cultures, but in no non-human species. Linguist Ray Jackendoff sees many parallels between mental processing of narrative and of music. In his book, Music, Language, and the Brain, Anarud Patel concludes there is a narrative tendency in music. Purely instrumental music does exist, but when it is successful in the marketplace, it typically merges into program music, or symphonic poems, whose titles or movements suggested a story that stimulates the listener's imagination. According to musicologist Anthony Newcomb, the, classic symphony is, the classical symphony is in effect a composed novel that at least vaguely, emotionally, suggests the story. Conspiracy Theories in Narrative 
Popular narratives often have an underlying us-versus-them theme, a Manichaean tone that reveals the evil or absurdity of certain characters in the story. Jokes are quite often at somebody else's expense, members of some other group. In extreme cases, they may focus on events as evidence of an imagined conspiracy. According to the historian Richard Hofstetter, who offers many examples of unfounded conspiracy theories in U.S. history, the narratives tend to show, quote, almost touching concern with factuality, end quote, despite often being almost absurd. Of course, it is rational to, for people to be alert to conspiracies because history is filled with real conspiracies. But the human mind seems to have a built-in interest in conspiracies, a tendency to form a personal identity and a loyalty to friends based on the desire to protect oneself from the perceived plots of others. This dip disposition appears to be related to human patterns of reciprocity and of vengeance against presumed enemies, two tendencies that have been found relevant to economic behavior in terms of willingness to give in bargaining or eagerness to punish unfair behavior, even if doing so means economic loss. Story and Narrative The words narrative and story are often used interchangeably, but according to the Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary, a narrative is, quote, a way of presenting or understanding a situation or series of events that reflects and promotes a particular point of view or set of values, end quote. So a narrative is a particular form of a story or of stories suggesting the important elements and their significance to the receiver. Narratives generally take the form of some recounting of events, whether actual or fictional, though often the specific events described are little more than bits of color, brightening a concept and making it more contagious. The human tendency to form simple narratives around even the most complex chains of events infects even the most analytical minds. Gary Kasparov, international chess grandmaster, commented from his own experience, quote, The biggest problem was that even the players would fall into the trap of seeing each game of chess as a story, a coherent narrative with a beginning and a middle and a finish, with few twists and turns along the way, and of course, a moral at the end of the story, end quote. Historian Hayden White has emphasized the distinction between a historical narrative and a historical chronicle, which merely lists sequence of events. Quote, the demand for closure in the historical story is a demand, I suggest, for moral meaning, a demand that sequences of real events be assessed as to their significance as elements of a moral drama. End quote. Economists have tended to write theories as if a benevolent dictator can implement a specific plan to achieve the greatest social welfare but we have no such planner. We do have people who can be selfish, altruistic, or both. These people can be influenced by stories. Hmm. Of scripts and rolling suitcases. According to psychologists Robert Roger Shank and Robert Abelson, narratives may be seen as nothing more than scripts. These scripts are also called social norms, and they partially govern our activities, including our economic actions. For example, the prudent person rule in finance is one social norm with economic impact. Fiduciaries and experts do not have the right to act on their own judgment. Instead, they must, 
mimic a prudent person, which in effect means following a script. When in doubt about how to behave in an ambiguous situation, people may think back to narratives and adopt a role they have heard of, as if they are acting in a play they have seen before. We can debate whether such behavior is rational. In one sense, it is rational to copy the behavior of apparently successful people, even if one does not see any logic in the behavior. Those being copied might have mysterious or unobserved reasons for such behavior, and their success suggests that they have at least stumbled onto an advantageous behavior. But traditional economic theory does not model this kind of rationality. It sees the following of others' behavior as more reflexive, not as a thoughtful application of the principle, when in doubt, imitate. This reflexivity does not generally follow the typical economic assumption that people attempt to maximize their utility based on all available information. On the contrary, following scripts set by others often looks like quite stupid behavior. People often fail to notice ideas if those ideas are not part of a script or are not packaged well enough. In my 2003 book, The New Financial Order, I argued that some obvious financial inventions have not been adopted anywhere, and I asked why. As an analogy, I gave the example of the wheeled suitcase. These did not become popular until the 1990s, when a Northwest Airlines pilot, Robert Plath, invented his rollerboard with both wheels and a rigid handle that can collapse into the suitcase. An earlier version of the wheeled suitcase by Bernard Sado in 1972 had achieved only limited acceptance. The traveler pulled it along by a leather strap, and it worked moderately well, though not perfectly because it tended to flop over sideways. Still, it was a big improvement over non-wheeled suitcases. Sado had great difficulty getting his wheeled suitcase accepted in the market. Nobody seemed interested. But why? The idea was good, and today almost every traveler owns a rollerboard or its descendant. Most people wouldn't even think about buying a suitcase without wheels. Years after the new financial order was published, I received an email from a former patent examiner who told me of a wheeled trunk patent in, in sorry, 1887, and it looks like much the same idea. But I could not find it advertised in the newspapers of that era. I later found a 1951 article by John Allen May, who recounted his efforts to manufacture and sell a wheeled suitcase starting in 1932. May wrote, quote, And they laughed. I was very serious about it, but they laughed, the whole lot of them. When I spoke to any group about the further application of the theory of wheels, they would express themselves as vastly entertained in a kind of soporific way. Why not make full use of the wheel? Why haven't we fitted people with wheels? They would say. I calculate I have outlined the wheeled suitcase idea to 125 groups of people and approximately 1,500 individuals. Even my wife tired of hearing about it back in 1937. The only man who ever took me seriously was an inventor who lived for a time a couple of houses away. The trouble was, nobody took him serious, seriously either. End quote. I have never understood why the wheeled suitcase idea wasn't absolutely contagious. My guess is that, with Plath's invention, glamour overcame the sense that wheels on a suitcase looked ridiculous.
1991. Its 1991 newspaper ads attached the rollerboard narrative to airlines, which seemed much more glamorous in the 1990s than they do today. Quote, It's pilot-designed and approved for carry-on on board most airlines. With its built-in wheels and retractable handle, you can roll it through the airport, aboard the plane, and down the aisle. End quote. The epidemic was fueled when flight crews adopted the rollerboards and passengers saw those glamorous-looking people walking through airports, pulling their rollerboards effortlessly behind them. By 1993, the ads for rollerboards took advantage of this publicity, citing them as the, quote, first choice of air crews worldwide, end quote, end quote. Maybe that is all it took to make a good idea, over a hundred years old, suddenly contagious. Experimental Evidence on Virality Experimental evidence shows that the success of individual creative works depends on how people assess the reactions of others who are observing the work. In one experiment, sociologist Matthew, Matthew Salganik and his colleagues set up an artificial music market online. Oh, this is a good study. The market included an array of songs that customers could listen to, rate, and if they chose, download Unknown bands performed all the songs, and none of the listeners had ever heard any of the songs before taking part in the experiment. This artificial market simulated real online markets in that subjects never communicated with one another except that they could observe the popularity of songs. This popularity ranking was the only spark. The subject were, subjects were randomly assigned to two conditions, independent and shared. Those in the independent condition had to choose songs entirely independently, never seeing the choices of the others. Those in the shared condition were divided into eight groups and saw others as downloads in their group only. In the extreme shared condition, the computer screen always showed the songs in rank order in terms of popularity measured by downloads. The first subject customer to buy in each shared condition, world, or group, saw no information about others' choice. The second customer always saw the first customer's choice, and so on. The researchers found that each of the eight, world, eight, eight groups developed its own set of hits, only imperfectly correlated across worlds, and that the inequality of success across worlds was uniformly higher than in the independent world, where customers never saw information about others' choice. It seems logical to conclude that something about the random initial choices in the shared worlds got amplified as time went on. In the real world, the effect is likely even stronger because real-world marketers attempt to play up the audience size as much as possible. This research may be taken as experimental confirmation that random small beginnings can lead to big epidemics. The lesson is that history including economic history, is not the logically ordered sequence of events that is presented by subsequent narratives that try to make sense of it or try to achieve public consensus. Major things happen because of seemingly irrelevant mutations in narratives that have slightly higher contagion rates, slightly lower forgetting rates, or first-mover effects that give one set of competing narratives a head start. These random effects can feed back into bigger and more pervasive narrative constellations, as we will see in the next chapter, which examines the narrative constellations associated with the famous, or infamous, Laffer Curve. 
Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.